Uh, Let's stand and read our scripture together for this morning. Acts chapter 16, verses 16 through 24. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, These men are Jews, and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. This is God's word. You may be seated. You know, I've been noticing as Halloween is approaching that uh, the Halloween stores are packed. Have you noticed that? Um, I I read a statistic not long ago that said that... uh, more money is spent now in the United States on Halloween than on Christmas uh, in terms of decorations and things of that nature. And uh, Crazy, right? I went to, uh, I was doing a, a project at home yesterday that I thought might take an hour and a half, and guys, you'll appreciate this. It took me kind of all day, and, and it's still not done. Um, but, but it was one of those days where you go to the hardware store, you get the thing, you come home, you, you, you're, you're doing with it what needs to be done, and then you realize, oh, uh, uh, it's the wrong thing, or I needed another thing, right? And so uh, three times I was at Ace Hardware yesterday on the west side, and um, and this year there's a Halloween store right next to the Ace Hardware, and there was absolutely no place to park. And Ace Hardware was like a ghost town, and the Halloween store was like a beehive. I mean, it was just crazy. So... Um, <laughs> Halloween is coming. I've also noticed the streaming platforms like Netflix and Prime, um, Hulu, you know, they're queuing up every horror film ever made, right? And, and so it, it's lots of opportunity to have, uh, be scared to death, um, in these weeks. But, you know, it occurred to me then that a narrative like the one we're thinking about today is, is very timely, um, because here, We have a a young girl, maybe 14 years of age, uh, possessed by a demon, screaming, shrieking, finally being exorcised in the name of Jesus Christ at the command of the Apostle Paul. Exorcised meaning that the demon was driven out, not that it did calisthenics. Um, But it's it's interesting to me, and I think it should be to you too, that, that they were met, Paul and Silas and Luke and Timothy, they were met by this girl on their way to the place of prayer. Notice with me, Luke doesn't say, we met a slave girl. But rather he says, we were met by her. 
there was intentionality in that encounter on the part of the slave girl, and it's no coincidence that, that she intersected their travel at a time when they were going to engage in prayer, when they were going to engage in worship, and in ministry in the name of Jesus. The Apostle Paul, as he drew his letter uh, to the church in Ephesus to a close, taught them, finally be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. You know, I wonder how often it's true that that we struggle in prayer, in worship, our our worship is disrupted, our worship is anemic, our attention is drawn away from God's Word, our, our ministry efforts feel to us as if we're walking or trying to jog through wet concrete, and, and we experience conflict in our homes and in the church for this very reason that we are experiencing spiritual opposition. Uh, and, and we don't name it for what it is. We don't take the time to think about what's actually happening. I think it's more often than we realize, don't you? Of course, these days we're... We're too sophisticated to attribute any of those experiences to superstitions like demonic activity, aren't we? You know, I've personally never experienced a direct confrontation or a conflict with a demon, for which I am very thankful. I hope never to have that experience. But I have been acutely aware on multiple occasions that I was in the presence of one or more demonic entities. I've also been very aware on many, many occasions of the work of Satan in my life and in the life of a church. Paul's description of spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6 describes ranks of demonic forces that are arrayed against us as followers of Jesus. And the sooner we we come to terms with that reality, and the sooner we come to terms with, with their activity, their opposition, their their interference, their attacks, the, the more discerning we will be in resisting their strategies, the more intentional we can be in putting on the what Paul calls the full armor of God and wielding the weaponry of, of spiritual warfare provided to us by the Holy Spirit. Well, well, let's get into the story a little deeper. The girl who met Paul... Silas and company on their way to the place of prayer by the river outside of Philippi was a girl twice enslaved and once delivered. Let me read that opening section again. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. Now Luke tells us two important facts about this girl in verse 16. We've already seen that she was young. The the language that Paul or that Luke uses here uh, identifies her as a probably a teenage girl. Not only that, but she was a slave girl, which tells us that she was someone's possession, that she was a commodity. 
And second, she had a spirit of divination. That is, she had an evil spirit. But, but, but let's be clear, it's more accurate to say that the evil spirit had her. She was under its control. And, and, and even though her owners and handlers made a lot of money by exploiting her, the demon who possessed the girl possessed greater power than that of her slave owners. In effect, the evil spirit had them too, just in a different way. Luke says that the spirit who possessed this young girl was a spirit of divination. And in her case, the the fortune-telling was not a fake in the sense of it being just an act. It wasn't just an act. Divination means soothsaying or fortune-telling, but more literally, Luke says that she had a spirit of, listen now, python. The literal Greek text says she had a spirit of python. What, what in the world does that mean? Well, in the mountains of central Greece, and we're in Philippi, remember, which is in what is today northern Greece. In the mountains of central Greece is a place called Delphi or Delphi. I've, I've heard it pronounced both ways. The, the temple of the mythical Greek god Apollo was there. Its ruins remain to this day. People would come to the temple of Apollo in large numbers to inquire of him about their futures. And it was believed that he would answer them through a priestess known as the Oracle of Delphi. You may have heard that that title, the Oracle of Delphi. In Greek mythology, the python was this enormous serpent that, that guarded both the temple of Apollo and the oracle, the priestess. And in Greek mythology, Apollo heroically killed that python. Subsequently, the serpent was thought to have been embodied in Apollo, much like in Native American mythology, where killing a bear, the the bear spirit becomes a part of the the being of the warrior that, that killed it. Subsequently then, Apollo, it was believed, conveyed that serpent spirit to the priestesses who served in the temple by which they were able to practice divination or fortune-telling. That's what was going on. These priestesses at Delphi were known to speak from their bellies without opening their mouths. Now, my belly speaks every now and then without, without, (laughs) without me opening my mouth. That happens. So, so this would, this would be almost funny if it weren't on this occasion true. See, what was being practiced at Delphi was, was some very deep stuff, some very deep demonic darkness. Voices would come out of them that were not from their own and not from their mouths. And in time, that word python came to mean a demon-possessed person. It was just kind of evolved, as language does, to describe a demon-possessed person through whom a demon spoke. And even a ventriloquist was thought to, to have a python spirit living within his or her belly. And so Luke tells us that the slave girl of Philippi had a spirit of python. All who knew the girl regarded her as neither a fraud nor insane, but as supernaturally possessed of a demon. 
She was able to foretell the future. We, we know from the scriptures that demons are not, as the Lord is, all-knowing or omniscient. So they can't really tell the future, but they can deceive. And in, in this way, the slave girl earned a whole lot of money for her owners. You know, many people in our world are preoccupied with the attempt to ascertain the future. So they turn to fortune tellers and palm readers and tarot cards, horoscopes, Ouija boards, seances, and and more. And God's word says that these are things to be rejected and strictly avoided by his holy people. They are not harmless. So if you go to the store and you're buying table games for your children, don't pick that Ouija board off the shelf. They are the playground of deceptive, demonic entities. Leviticus 19.31, God said to his people, Do not turn to mediums or necromancers. Do not seek them out, so make yourselves unclean by them. I am the Lord your God. Well, what's a, what's a necromancer? Similar to a medium, a necromancer is a person who conjures up or calls up the spirits of the dead for purposes of revealing or influencing the future. In Deuteronomy 19, God said, When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or his daughter as an offering, anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens, or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God. For these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. Now notice that When the slave girl met Paul, Silas, and Timothy, and Luke on the way to the place of prayer, she doesn't confront them. She doesn't attack them. She doesn't spit on them. Uh, She doesn't ridicule them. Neither did the, the demons speak in any way directly to them. Instead, the slave girl joined them. Joined them. Luke wrote, she followed Paul and us, crying out, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Now, before we we get to what she was actually saying as she cried out, allow me to provide one more piece of color commentary. Luke employs a word to describe the sound that the slave girl would make as she cried out. It's an it's an onomatopoeia. You remember that from your English classes? It's It's a word that means what it sounds like. And in this case, it was tended, intended to sound like the piercing, ragged caw of a raven. We don't have ravens around here. We have crows close enough. So she, she wasn't running along beside them with pom-poms, yelling like a cheerleader at a football game. It's not what was going on. She was cawing. We might say croaking and screaming, even shrieking and 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 drawing all kinds of attention as she articulated these words, these men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. Now again, this wasn't the first time something like this had taken place, was it? Demons would also scream and cry out during the days of Jesus' ministry 
whenever he came around. For example, in Luke 4, Jesus went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee. He was teaching them on the Sabbath. They were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a loud voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. In Mark 3.11, very succinctly, it says, Whenever the unclean spirits saw him, that is Jesus, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. In Mark 5, they Scripture says they came to the other side of the sea, that is the Sea of Galilee. This is Jesus and his disciples to the country of the Gerasenes. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him any more, not even with a chain, for he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. And when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him and crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. For he was saying to him, Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. I notice that, that on each of these occasions, and I could go on, whether with Jesus or with Paul, there, there seems to have been a compulsive acknowledgement from the demons of the true identity and character of those who were being confronted. And by compulsive, I mean that, that it would seem that the demons had no other choice but to acknowledge them and to do so verbally. And so again, in verse 17, the slave girl's crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And what she said is true, isn't it? Paul and his team were servants of the Most High God. They, they had come to proclaim the way of salvation. She was providing free publicity. She didn't have to take out an ad, pay for it. Exorbitant advertising fees. Paul and Silas didn't have to, you know, go to Facebook for an ad or a Google ad that would play in Philippi. None of that was going on. She was providing free publicity. She was probably gathering an audience. So what could have been the problem? Remember that Jesus said that Satan is a liar and the father of lies. He's a deceiver. He often begins his deceptions and temptations with a modicum of truth. Truth, that is, with a deadly twist. Let's consider at least some of the problems that the demon and the slave girl were creating for the mission team. First, think about this, that language matters. The words we speak, the words we choose to use matter. Paul and company were servants of the Most High God. But they're in Philippi. And for the Greeks, Most High God was also a title used for Zeus, the the chief deity in the Greek pantheon. Those in Philippi might just as well have concluded that Paul and his team were 
priests of Zeus. Added to that, the Greeks also used the term salvation, but it didn't mean to them what it means for us as Christians. For a Greek, salvation did not mean sins forgiven, a reconciled relationship with God, the the hope of eternal life. To them, it meant being released from the powers governing human fate. Karma, if you will, although that term didn't come from them. Same concept. And released from the material world. So there was a a definite possibility of a confusion of meaning. Second, there was a possible confusion of agreement. People could have been led to believe that the apostles were in agreement with the demon and what the demon was all about and vice versa. And third, there was a a possible confusion of what I just call alignment or, or alliance. In other words, people might have gotten the impression that the apostles and the demon were just part of one religious system, so there was no real reason to listen to the apostles because they would have nothing new or different to say. In other words, the demon was attempting to undermine and co-opt the message that Paul and company had come to bring. In addition, it's hard to imagine that there wasn't some kind of mocking tone laced throughout the entirety of what the demon was saying through the girl. Verse 18, this she kept doing for many days. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. This shrieking, this screaming, this croaking, this cawing went on for many days. Can you, can you imagine? Constant companion, all day, every day, crying out, croaking, cawing. And it's possible, really, because of that, that the demon's words were getting more of a hearing than the gospel that Paul and company were trying to proclaim. But the time came when Paul had had enough. Luke says that Paul became greatly annoyed. <laughs> At least, right? At least. He didn't say that Paul lost his temper, although... Who could have blamed him if he had? And instead, the word Luke uses paints a very different picture of Paul's emotional state. That word is actually the same word that Luke employed to describe the emotion of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council, over the message that Peter and John were proclaiming that Jesus, whom they, whom they had crucified, had actually risen from the dead. But an even more intense and poignant parallel is found clear back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 6, where it's written that the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. It grieved him. And of course, the Old Testament wasn't written in Hebrew, or was written in Hebrew, not in Greek. But when the Old Testament was translated from Hebrew to Greek, the the translators chose this same Greek word to to convey the grief that God felt at the wickedness of mankind that Luke used to describe Paul's annoyance at the persistent crying out of this demon. Remember that it was the Lord's deep regret. It was his grief that led him to send a flood upon the whole earth and to destroy every living thing that didn't make it into the ark. Clearly, the word means something so much deeper than mere annoyance or or irritation, but rather a deep distress, a sorrow, and a grief that that Paul was experiencing at what was taking place. 
The work of the demon was to desecrate, to pervert, to co-opt the message of the gospel and to go on deceiving the people at Philippi. And so Paul turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. Now, notice, please, since it's just about Halloween, that, that none of the, the phenomena so graphically portrayed in a movie like The Exorcist occurred here. Not that any of you saw it. But there was no cowering priest. There were no spinning heads, no levitation, no projectile vomiting, no cursing from the demon. Paul didn't read a liturgy from a book of exorcism. He, he didn't sprinkle holy water on the girl or hold a crucifix out in her direction. He didn't ask or invite the demon to come out of the girl. There was no protracted dramatic confrontation. He simply turned commanded the demon in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it did. Luke says that very hour. But an actual translation is that very moment. That very moment. It had no other choice. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. The power that, that drove the demon out of the girl was not Paul's power. Power and authority over the spiritual forces of evil rests in Jesus Christ alone. It was, it's at his name that every knee must bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue must confess that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. When we read in the New Testament of demons being cast out, the, the people delivered from their control not only experience freedom from demonic possession, but they also experience comprehensive healing and a new redeemed relationship with God. For example, that man who that I just read about who lived in the tombs and who was always crying out and cutting himself, who had superhuman strength and, and who named Jesus for who he was. When Jesus arrived and cast the demon out of him, he was shortly found clothed and in his right mind, and he became a follower of Jesus. The wonderful realization then in Acts 16 is that the slave girl was not only released from the power and the control of the demon, but in one act of deliverance, she received comprehensive healing physically, mentally, spiritually. She not only received deliverance from the evil spirit, but, but we can be confident that she also came, as the garrison demoniac did, to personal faith in Jesus. Remember that, that Jesus himself pointed out that exorcism, you can read this in Luke 11, 20 to 26, that exorcism remains useless unless the indwelling of God by his Holy Spirit replaces the indwelling of evil spirits. In other words, he said, you, demons cast out if, uh, you know, if, if that place isn't filled again that he occupied. Then he goes out and gets his buddies and they come back and the, the next condition is worse than the first. And so God in his grace, when he drives out these demons, also fills them 
with his spirit. And so out of her handler's extreme gratitude for their ministry of mercy toward this girl whom they had exploited and abused, Paul and Silas were accused, beaten, and jailed. Thank you very much. But when her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they are disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. The crowd joined in attacking them, and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. There's a, there's a play on word here, words here in verses 18 and 19, and it centers on the word that's translated came out in verse 18. The demon came out of the slave girl, and in verse 19, he uses that same word for her owner's hope of profit. But when the demon came out, their source of income came out as well. When Paul exercised that evil spirit, he also exercised their hope of financial gain through her. And so they seized Paul and Silas, they dragged them into the marketplace before those Roman magistrates and brought three accusations against them. Let's look at those accusations. First of all, they are Jews, appealing to the latent anti-Semitism and bigotry of the Roman magistrates. Remember, the Jews had been expelled from Rome just a year or so prior to these events, and, and, and now here they are in the Roman colony of Philippi causing trouble. Never mind that there weren't enough Jews in the city of Philippi to establish the synagogue. They, they needed ten adult men, Jewish men, to establish the synagogue. There, there wasn't a synagogue in Philippi. But I've said it before, I'll say it again. The spirit of anti-Semitism is also the spirit of anti-Christ. The two always go together. Isn't it amazing that the Jews have been kicked around for millennia and they are still with us? and they are in their homeland, and they are stronger and more secure than they have been in centuries. And there's a reason. It's because God has a plan and a purpose to save the Jews. There's a plan and a purpose to save Israel en masse by revealing to them finally that Jesus really is the Messiah. And that event is just around the corner. The second accusation was that they are disturbing our city. And because Philippi was a Roman colony, the rulers of the city had an even greater responsibility and accountability to maintain the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. They had to suppress any uh, civil unrest that, that could rise up against that peace, against the rule of law. But notice in what noble terms these slave owners expressed their opposition to Paul and Silas. The stability of the city is at stake. You see, they not only veiled the real reason for their animus toward these two men, which was entirely of a financial nature, but they also presented legal charges against them in terms that were meant to inflame the fears and the passions of both the rulers and the people. Kind of reminds me of the claims of Planned Parenthood that putting limits on abortion is an attack against health care for women. Really. Sounds so noble and yet it's so 
twisted and perverted. Third, they're advocating customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice, especially, I would imagine, saying that Jesus is Lord and not Caesar is Lord. Such a head-on challenge to emperor worship was considered treasonous throughout the empire. But Satan had his day, and he, he stirred up the crowd into a mob. The magistrates subjected them to public humiliation by stripping them entirely naked. He gave orders for them to be beaten with rods. And those who administered the beating were Roman soldiers trained in a variety of methods of inflicting intense pain. They were specifically trained in the art of torture. The rods were usually made of birch wood. The victims were beaten mercilessly over their entire bodies. History records that many people died from these beatings with rods. And after that severe beating, which which not only bruised but lacerated the skin, often broke bones, orders were given for Paul and Silas to be thrown into jail and securely held. So the jailer placed them in the most secure section of his jail and fastened their feet in stocks. Now, now some of you have visited a, a city like Boston or Salem and You've had pictures taken of yourself with your head in stocks or your legs in stocks or your hands in stocks or all five. And isn't that cute? But in the days that we're reading about here, fastening feet in stocks was also a form of torture. Because when a prisoner was placed in the stocks, his legs were forcibly drawn apart and stretched wide beyond comfort, and then in that uncomfortable position, his feet were then locked into place. And it would force him to lie on his back on on a rough board, his fresh wounds from the beatings further exacerbated by the splinters in the wood. Paul later wrote to the Corinthians that he had experienced countless beatings, often leaving him near death, and that on three separate occasions he had been beaten specifically with rods. But, but these traumatic experiences never deterred Paul from fulfilling his mission. Uh, he later referenced this beating in Philippi in his first letter to the believers in Thessalonica, chapter 2, verse 2. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of such conflict. As we begin to perceive the injury that that Paul and Silas sustained, uh, the extreme physical discomfort they endured through through the night in their prison cell, what we read next in verse 25, and we're going to come to this next week, is beyond amazing, humbling to those of us who complain at the slightest degree of discomfort or, or even minimal inconvenience. Severely beaten, bruised, broken, bleeding, bound, yet... About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the prisoners were listening to them. As those other prisoners listened, they they didn't hear grunts of pain. They heard songs of praise. And I never cease to find it at the same time incredibly inspiring and extremely humbling to, to see the responses of those first century Christ followers to suffering for the name of Jesus. They they saw it as a blessing. They regarded it as an opportunity to bring glory and honor 
to their Savior and Lord. Remember uh, that first occasion in chapter 5 when, when the apostles, having been commanded by the Jewish ruling council to to cease and desist in their preaching in the name of Jesus, went right back on the, out on the streets and did it again. And again they were arrested and, and brought before the Sanhedrin. At verse, verses 40 to 41 of chapter 5, we read that when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus, and then let them go. And then they, the apostles, left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer for dishonor for for the name of Christ. So again here, we, we see another, here in chapter 16, we see another set of Christ followers responding to beatings, not with complaint, but with joyful gratitude, grateful to have been considered worthy of suffering for the sake of Christ. Let me ask you this morning, as you purpose to follow Jesus in your life, to serve him, are you anticipating opposition? I mean, might Paul have asked, what's this, God? Did I do something wrong here? Should I have treated John, Mark, and Barnabas a little better than I did? What about that vision of the, the man of Macedonia? Was that just the consequences of, of what I had to eat the night before? What, you know, was it, did we misinterpret the effect of an anchovy pizza as your divine call? I'm pretty sure I, I might have been asking those kinds of questions. Not the one about the anchovy pizza. Who likes that, right? But Paul could have been asking them, but he, but he didn't. And later in a letter he wrote back to the church in Philippi, he said that his chief goal in life was that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. And he would remind them that it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. It's been appointed to you to suffer for his sake. The Lord Jesus said to his disciples, if the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Of the early martyrs of the church, the writer of Hebrews said, some were tortured refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging, even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated. Now listen, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. See, when you and I engage Christian life and ministry with the presupposition that God will always reward our efforts with success as the world defines it, that he owes us things in return for our faithfulness, 
most of us will drop out almost before we've started. Why? Because we have an enemy who, who wants to discourage us, to disqualify us, to divide us, to defeat us at every turn. And he's very shrewd. And sadly, often very successful. What do we learn from this text about how Satan will seek to defeat you when you set out to share the gospel? Last week, we talked about sharing the gospel, about the, the Lord open, opening Lydia's heart to receive what the, what the apostles had to say, to receive the gospel. But what will Satan do with you when, when you set out to do, do those things? Well, he, he may twist and pervert your message. Pretty clear. He may cause others to call your motives into question. He may damage your reputation. He may disrupt your family. He may divide your church. He may destroy your career. He may attempt to shut you up entirely. He may hurt you or those you love physically or or even kill you. And you will have occasions when you won't be treated the way you think you ought to be when when you don't receive the thanks and affirmation that you think is due you. When following Jesus and serving him seems more a burden than a blessing. And on those occasions, you may say, God, this isn't what I signed up for. This isn't living my best life now. This, this isn't fair. And God may say to you on that occasion, whoever said anything about fair? Jesus said, in the world, you will have trouble and suffering. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. May that be true of us. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your word today. Lord, may we be counted among those who rejoice in sufferings. It's not natural for us. Sometimes it doesn't even seem possible that we would respond that way. But Lord, may it be true of us. May you be honored. May we not be surprised when opposition comes our way, when we are persecuted, when we suffer, when we're humiliated, ridiculed, rejected for the name of Jesus. But Lord, may we, like Paul, just keep on keeping on and making the gospel known to those who will listen and so be saved. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.